Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Research has shown that obesity can predispose older adults to a vast array of physical, mental, social, and economic problems as they age. Excess weight can make it difficult for this population to function normally and increases the likelihood of developing health complications and cognitive decline. Today, my guest is Dr. Neil Caparaso, Emeritus Professor with the Division of Cancer Epidemiology and Genetics at the National Cancer Institute, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. He will provide an update on the status of obesity in the United States and the world, including prevalence, causes, and health consequences, especially among older adults. He will also describe procedures and medications being used to treat obesity and effective measures to lose weight and prevent its return. So welcome, Dr. Caparaso, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Cheryl. Very, very happy to be here. Okay, well, then let's get started. As I mentioned, we want to talk about the status of obesity. So give us an overview. What is the current status of obesity in the United States and the world? Obesity is really a staggering problem uh, in the United States and worldwide today. First of all, for your listeners, I'd like you to... um, tell everybody to grab a pencil because uh, I will be uh, dropping some websites and some handy tips at the end. Uh, So you may want to note a few things down. Um, I actually had a chance to speak to you a number of years ago about uh, uh, some aspects of the obesity problem. And it's shocking to me how this has progressed over time. At that time, the figures from the CDC indicated that 39% of American adults were overweight or obese. And in just a few years since then, and those figures were from 2016, that figure has progressed to 42%. So it's rather amazing. And to get some idea, I could quote a lot of statistics, and I will add some as we... uh, move along. But if you were to take a look at an old college or high school yearbook or old photos from the 70s or 60s, it almost looks like you're looking from another era or age to see how odd it is that people look shockingly thinner. It's amazing how obesity has become common in society today and how weight has um, become a common aspect of our everyday lives. And Dr. Caparaso, is there ethnic and geographic differences? Does that influence the obesity problem? There are important ethnic differences. African Americans and uh, Hispanics have higher levels um, of obesity. Uh, for example, of African-Americans are uh, overweight or obese compared to about 40% uh, in whites and uh, in Hispanics, it's in the mid forties. And uh, for Asians, that figure is uh, somewhat lower, closer to 20%. Um, Worldwide, uh, the United States really was the leader in that these trends began Uh, earlier in the United States and the developed world. But today, um, uh, we see that virtually every country in the world, and there are um, websites where you can go and check uh, literally the um, progress of obesity uh, across the world. There is no country uh, where the rate of obesity is declining. It's increasing worldwide. So this is a problem that um, every country will face and um, both the developed and the non-developed world. So the rates of obesity are increasing rapidly in Africa and also in um, Asia, uh, India, um, Japan, 
and China are also seeing very rapidly uh, increasing rates of obesity. So obviously, you've answered my next question, which was, this is no longer just an American problem. It is all over the world. It is. It does vary uh, by different countries, and it varies uh, strikingly within the United States. Um, There are areas in the United States where the problem is much worse, and there is a so-called obesity belt in the southeast United States uh, centered around uh, Louisiana, Georgia, uh, and uh, states in the southeast where obesity is more prevalent and uh, is worse. And that's also an area where, not surprisingly, rates of diabetes are highest as well. And now that we're getting into more the the individuals, uh, and we're going to be talking about that a lot through the rest of this uh, interview, help us understand what is the difference between overweight and obese? Define that. And as part of your response, are there actually healthy, overweight people? So the most common measure used to characterize adiposity, which is a fancy name for uh, excess weight or fat, um, is the BMI or body mass index. And this is just a simple uh, formula that includes uh, height and weight. And um, if uh, any of your listeners want to calculate that, uh, you just get your height and weight. And there are uh, handy BMI calculators Uh, online. So you just go into Google and type in BMI calculator and you can calculate your own BMI. In any case, overweight is considered a BMI greater than 25 and obese is considered a BMI greater than 30. And then there are classes of obesity, class one, two, and three, uh, based on even higher levels uh, of obesity. As for healthy Uh, overweight and obese. Yes, there are people that uh, carry excess weight and um, are metabolically healthy. Conversely, uh, you can have a normal BMI and have metabolically adverse features. Also, the BMI is not a perfect measure of adiposity. And the reason for that is obvious. There are people like uh, weightlifters that carry a lot of muscle, and that's obviously uh, more healthy than couch potatoes that uh, are uh, somewhat rotund and carry a lot of fat. So uh, in that case, the BMI is not a perfect measure. But for population studies and for uh, epidemiologic work, many times the BMI is convenient for researchers to um, to study. And also uh, studies have shown that the BMI does correlate very well with more sophisticated studies. For example, you can do imaging studies that can show very precisely the amount of body fat. And when you do those studies, the correlation of BMI is pretty good. Um, there are problems, for instance, uh, Body fat and BMI vary by gender. Obviously, women have a different distribution and amount of body fat than men. Also, there are differences by ethnic groups. Um, And there are differences by age. Uh, So there are problems with the BMI. It's not a perfect measure. And no one should determine their health status solely on the basis of BMI. But it's one quick uh, back-of-the-envelope measure that you can use and any any individual can use to get an idea of where they stand. And your doctor will likely use it to uh, follow your status of your weight. And you have mentioned already that there is a difference as far as men and women because of of distribution of the the weight, I guess. Anything else that you wanted to say? Is it really always the case that there's more obesity amongst women than men or men and women? What are you seeing? Well, um, men are more likely to be overweight and women are more likely to be uh, obese. 
but these are slight tendencies, and overall, um, uh, the obesity problem affects both genders. Um, you know, there are slight differences, but it's it's an issue for for both genders. So. Obviously, since this is the Aging Matters program, I want to get more into older adults and the consequences of obesity. Start talking about the specific health consequences of obesity for older adults. I mentioned it in my introduction, but tell us more. So I will focus on older adults. Let me say one thing about the pediatric uh, population, that the rates of obesity and our pediatric population are skyrocketing. And epidemiologically, this is always important because it means that anything we see in a pediatric population is going to impact the older population and impact society a lot. So you start to have obese kids, it means you're going to pack in all the diseases associated uh, with obesity, and I'm going to talk about in a second. So we're going to have that disease burden. We're going to have that economic burden. We're going to have that burden to society later on. So I do want to mention that. As for the diseases associated with obesity, all of the CDC top causes of mortality, unfortunately, are associated with obesity. So number one is heart disease. Number two is cancer. Then you have stroke, uh, diabetes chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, all of these are strongly associated with carrying excess weight. So there are really a lot of reasons to uh, avoid uh, obesity, and uh, this, is, this is a key one. In addition, um, many people don't realize there are about 200 other conditions associated with obesity. Um, Less common conditions, uh, such as sleep disturbances, skin conditions, arthritis, um, difficulty moving, um, gastrointestinal problems, um, many, many, many conditions that um, are related to weight. And people who lose weight often find, wow, my, my, I had a frozen shoulder and it, uh, it got better when I lost weight. So this is a common phenomenon. And um, uh, losing weight often improves uh, physical conditions that folks didn't realize uh, were related to their uh, excess weight. I would also imagine that there are certainly mental and social ramifications of obesity. We talk about that mental and social issues uh, pertaining to elderly so much, particularly loneliness, of course, was connected with COVID and the epidemic. But, But if someone who is an older adult also is obese, isn't there a, a good possibility that social and mental attitudes for themselves can also um, be a part of the problem? Well, there are, and this is something that society is becoming more aware of. Um, And there's actually uh, groups that have formed the National Association to Advance Fact Acceptance. Um, There there are uh, increasing awareness that there are real social consequences to obesity. One of the most common is that obesity is associated with both depression and anxiety. So uh, that is a big uh, impact. But uh, studies have shown that obese folks um, tend to have lower salaries, uh, have discrimination in terms of finding jobs and getting Uh, promotions at jobs. Uh, There's uh, uh, difficulties in getting married. There are a lot of uh, kinds of discrimination uh, against uh, people that carry excess weight. So this is um, a big issue. And then, of course, there's the, uh, the larger issue of 
the burden um, that they face in society, everything from uh, mobility issues uh, to uh, airplane seats. We live in a world that was designed for the size of people uh, from the 70s and 80s. And uh, given that 40% of the population is now larger or much larger, uh, we simply are not equipped to uh, handle um, the size of uh, folks. And so this is a accelerating problem that will only get greater as the problem gets worse. And I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but in the figures in the United States show that the rate of increase in weight is increasing at a, at a rate of almost 2% per year. So that indicates that uh, the problem will get worse before it gets better. And one thing I also wanted to just think about, and I'm sure our listeners might be pondering it and also is, does obesity then cause the mental and social issues or are the social issues that are going on in a person's life, whether it's depression or family issues or loneliness, does that cause obesity? How, how do you determine which causes which? So this is always um, a problem in science. Um, determining the direction of causation uh, is an issue. You can uh, determine correlation and you can do epidemiologic studies that suggest causation, but it's very, very hard to know if the obesity is the cause of the depression or if depression causes uh, lowered activity and that in turn uh, promotes weight gain. It's well known that depression has as one of its effects uh, alterations in food intake and alterations in appetite. So it's likely that the arrow of causation works in both directions, but we don't understand everything about that yet. And I would also think you kind of touched on it a little bit, Dr. Caparaso, but I wanted to think about it a little bit more, the economic aspects of obesity, the costs for the individual, the cost for society. In your studies, has this been a part of what you're looking at? Uh, as a scientist, that, that was not the focus of my studies, but there is a lot of research on this. And top-down, um, the um, uh, World Obesity Federation has done a lot of work on this area. And what they show is that about 2% of the GDP is currently um, being lost due to uh, medical, social, economic costs of obesity. And that figure is increasing uh, annually worldwide. As for an individual, as I said earlier, uh, Difficulties in finding work, in getting promotions, in finding uh, higher, the highest paying jobs, increasing disability at work, increasing uh, medical conditions related to obesity, all these adversely impact the individual. So make it uh, harder for them to uh, be in a advantageous position. So, um, it kind of impacts top down and, and bottoms up. It's um, not a good thing from a uh, money point of view to be, uh, to be obese. And another question that I think often comes up when people think about obesity or see in a person who's obese is, is it a genetic factor? Does genetics play a major role in causing obesity? Will genetics, say, dictate what the weight of somebody will be, or is it eating too much? What what do you know about that aspect of, of obesity? So genetics uh, is an area where I did a lot of work. And um, let me uh, say it's quite a complex area, but there are two big things to say. The first is that 
there are a set of rare genetic disorders that can determine obesity. So there's about 10 disorders that tend to manifest in kids. So these would show up in pediatric practices. You have a baby that tends to gain weight and have other issues. And studies then should be done and those kids may show up with genetic issues. Now, it's really important to note that because they're genetic, it doesn't mean you can't do something about them. So one example is a condition called Prader-Willi. Another is that you might have um, a kind of genetic-related hypothyroidism. So you have that condition, you would give thyroid hormone, and you might uh, get a lot of improvement. So there are genetic conditions um, that affect pediatric um, obesity. More commonly, there are a lot of genes that can affect weight um, within families. And uh, so people that have relations, their parents, their brothers and sisters that tend to uh, have excess weight. And uh, in those cases, people sometimes say, well, it runs in my family. That may be true to some extent, and studies do show that there is somewhat of a genetic component, but the genetic component is not decisive. The environment is still the most important thing, and by controlling the environment, they still have the dominant effect on their weight, although the genetics in those cases still has some influence. The social cultural, um, environmental, uh, geographic, where they live, uh, the, the poverty of the area or the economic well-being of the area can still have a dramatic um, effect and does have a dramatic effect on what their ultimate weight will be. Okay. Well, this is a good place to stop because the second half of the interview, we're going to be talking more about the, the causes of the uh, obesity epidemic. And obviously, Dr. Caparezo, you, you mentioned some already. But um, so just want to remind our listeners that uh, if you tuned in late, we're talking with Dr. Neil Caparezo, who is the Emeritus Professor with the Division of Cancer Epidemiology and Genetics at the National Cancer Institute, which, of course, is part of the National Institutes of Health. And you're listening to WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We have been having a great discussion about the status of obesity in this country and what some of the causes are and what some of the effects are. We're speaking with Dr. Neil Caparezo, who is with the Division of Cancer Epidemiology and Genetics at the National Cancer Institute. And so, Dr. Caparezo, right before the break, you led into the many different factors that really can predispose folks to obesity, including genetic conditions. But we all look at, at Google, and uh, it's sometimes affectionately known as Dr. Google. So help us learn more about what does Dr. Google say is the root cause of the obesity epidemic? Do we really actually know the answer, or is that just another um, opinion? Well, uh, Cheryl, if you ask Dr. Google, um, what the cause is, you're going to get an answer that it's multifactorial, which is a fancy way of saying, we don't know. Um, you'll get an answer like, well, when the caloric intake exceeds the energy utility, um, 
then uh, more fat is stored than is burned and uh, weight is gained. But that's like saying, why am I poor? More money is going out of my bank account than is coming in, and so I'm poor. But that doesn't really explain what's going on. Um, I may be spending too much, or I may be earning too little, or it really doesn't tell me anything. So back to the multifactorial. Um, this is uh, obviously a change in the environment because our genetics has remained the same roughly for the last uh, 10,000 years. Genes change very, very slowly. So something in the environment has changed, and particularly something has changed since uh, roughly around 1970 when the rates of obesity began accelerating first in the United States and then around the world. Um, clearly, a big change has been in our diet. Um, the uh, advent of massive amounts of processed foods and um, uh, that has been a gigantic change. And uh, one uh, way to uh, characterize this is that roughly in the 1950s, um, heart attacks became uh, common in the United States, um, particularly when President Eisenhower had well-publicized heart attacks. And um, the United States government began studying diet and the reasons for um, the increasing um, myocardial infarctions and um, concluded that um, cholesterol and fat in the diet might have something to do with it. This was without really a lot of um, scientific study. And the early dietary government recommendations in the 1970s were to reduce the fat in the diet. Unfortunately, um, when you reduce fat in the diet, you have to increase something else since the diet macronutrients are fat, protein, and carbohydrates. And the only thing you can really increase is carbohydrates. So substituting carbohydrates, essentially sugar for fat, was not a good idea. And it really wasn't until the mid-2000s that very, very large studies, the Women's Health Initiative in 2006, proved that a low-fat diet was a very bad idea. And it did not result in lower rates of either heart disease, cancer, or weight loss. And so um, Americans followed the early diet recommendations, but those recommendations, unfortunately, were poorly conceived and have not uh, helped us in terms of obesity. And I want to get more into those uh, those diet recommendations for the so-called official U.S. diet recommendations. But I just wanted to ask one question about the fat. You mentioned fat now, and we're going to talk a little bit more. Is there a biological purpose of fat? Is there some kind of evolutionary reason why people gain weight? Well, there is. If you think about it, until just a few generations ago, we humans had to deal with food shortages. So in the as early as the 1700s, the 1800s, food was not uh, immediately and readily available. So every winter, there was a chance that there was not going to be enough food to eat. And what determined if you were going to survive in the winter was whether you could put on uh, some fat storage uh, over the late summer when the harvest came in. So fat was a advantage, a survival mechanism. So it was a good thing. Um, and people tended to uh, gain that weight uh, in the late fall, and it helped them survive the uh, adverse conditions in the winter when Maybe there wasn't uh, enough food. And people who could not store fat had a lower chance of survival, and their kids had a lower chance of survival. So that had a biological and evolutionary uh, purpose. 
Today, we live in an environment where there's all sorts of food with readily available calories in the terms of sugar and carbohydrates. And so storing that excess fat and never getting rid of it was something our bodies were really not designed for. We're programmed biologically to consume those carbohydrates because they were necessary for survival um, back when food was not particularly available. And remember, again, going back just a few hundred years, which is like less than a tiny percentage of human history, there were no sugary sweets available. You had to knock down a beehive and fight the bees for the honey uh, to get something sweet. It was not something easily available or maybe for a few weeks um, when there was some fruit available, uh, you got something sweet, but it was not like you could just eat a candy bar or eat a sugar-laden cereal to have sugar. Now, sugar's everywhere, and that's not a good thing. So given that, now you said a little bit earlier, I want to get back to the diets now and and what really is recommended if the official U.S. diet recommendations have changed. Low-fat, you said, is not as healthy as it could be. What are the the official guidelines? Are there um, something that we can follow that you recommend insofar as a healthy diet? So these guidelines change very slowly. And, and remember, the government makes a food recommendation and the food manufacturers slowly respond and say, okay, this is what you want us to do. We'll do it. For example, snack well cookies. They got the fat out of the cookies and replaced the cookies with sugar. So you had a kind of a cookie that was all sugar. And um, this is what the dietary recommendations suggested. You had the food pyramid the whole bottom of the pyramid was carbohydrates. So they said, fill in your calories, the bottom of the pyramid with carbohydrates, pasta, pretzels, bread. And that was not necessarily a strikingly healthy uh, thing to do. Now, the recommendations today have backed off the low-fat recommendations. So the American Diabetes Association really over the last few years has backed away from low fat. No, low fat is no longer a recommendation. The only fats that are recognized as dangerous are trans fats, which are removed from the American food supply. But research suggests that hydrogenated fats um, that are uh, included in a lot of processed foods are really not a good idea. And so if I was to suggest a recommendation for folks, I would say that avoiding processed foods is a really uh, good idea and that folks' diets should be skewed towards fresh food, real food, food that your grandmother would recognize, which is the kind of food in the grocery store that you find around the outside. So fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, fresh meat and fish, that's the kind of food that is uh, ideal to eat. And the stuff that's in boxes, the stuff that's uh, heavily uh, packaged is um, what you want to avoid. Anything you see advertised on TV, Probably that's not ideal. Also, Dr. Caparese, what about the Weight Watcher programs that uh, that you see? Weight Watchers, Noom, there's other popular programs that are advertised for weight loss. What are your thoughts? So a lot of your listeners and a lot of us, frankly, wonder what's the best way to lose weight. And... Um, some of the uh, programs really are uh, not bad, although the documented record 
uh, for these programs is not um, outstanding. Frankly, um, most medical um, approaches to weight loss in the past have not been uh, outstandingly su successful. I will say that Weight Watchers, Noom, um, some of these other programs uh, are useful in that they can establish some relatively healthy habits and approaches that are good and teach some nutritional principles that are useful. So substituting um, high nutrition foods for high caloric foods, um, eliminating certain very uh, dangerous foods from the, um, from the diet, probably the uh, uh, single most uh, adverse food you can consume is soda. Uh, any sugary drink is really uh, uh, a nutritional disaster. So um, a lot of these programs uh, are helpful in, in that regard. Uh, and so I'd say I, I wouldn't give them full endorsement, but they're uh, not bad. And some people do find success. There's one other one. I just wanted to ask one other question about the keto. Is that a diet worth trying? What What are your thoughts about that? So the keto approach um, is a, a low carbohydrate diet um, approach, and it's uh, a rather uh, I don't want to call it extreme, but it is um, a metabolically um, a, a way to alter your diet uh, in, in a in a rather extreme way. So it can be useful, particularly for diabetics and pre-diabetics, but it requires uh, some education and a degree of supervision. So it can't be recommended casually. I don't think someone should just, uh, you know, buy a few keto products off the shelf and uh, wing it uh, with a keto diet. The other thing about the keto diet is it requires a fairly radical um, change in diet and can sometimes have quick results. But when you revert back uh, uh, to a regular diet, unfortunately, um, uh, some of the weight that was lost can come, can come back. So I'd say a keto diet is not some, the first thing that your uh, listeners should try uh, not without a lot of education and reading um, or some uh, medical supervision. Um, it, it is a sound um, approach, but not one that's, um, that's the first thing to try. I, I would say that the keto diet, for example, is used uh, at Hopkins in children uh, to control seizures. And there are other uh, medical uses in, in certain clinics uh, it's been very effective to treat pre-diabetes and uh, diabetics, but uh, you do need some medical uh, supervision to uh, and some help to uh, to get it right. Okay. Well, of course, we always hear about exercise, the other aspect, diet. We've certainly covered that now. Uh, so let's talk about exercise. What is the role of exercise in influencing weight? So exercise um, is a little bit of a paradox. You will hear that exercise by itself uh, does not result in weight loss. And this is true. The reason is pretty simple. You can take a um, one-hour session of exercise and burn an extra 100 calories. But if you come back and uh, your appetite is stimulated, or you uh, drink a 170-calorie uh, soft drink, um, obviously, uh, it's not good. That said, um, exercise is strongly associated with a number of health indices. And um, it's also associated with reduced rates of cancer. It's associated with um, better survival in people who have cancer, and overall a longer life expectancy. 
So um, exercise is a good thing. Also, and this seems slightly paradoxical, uh, long-term people who succeed in losing weight tend to exercise every day. So exercise combined with dietary change is an extremely effective strategy for long-term weight control. It's just not a magic bullet all by itself. That's very helpful. And I also wanted to ask you about environmental pollutants. I mean, we hear so much about the environment nowadays, climate change and that, but is there something else out there that we're not aware of in so far as environmental pollutants that's contributing to obesity, something that wasn't there, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago? So there is a class of chemicals, um, so-called obesogens, fancy word that just means uh, chemicals that cause us to uh, gain weight. And uh, these chemicals are also known as endocrine disruptors. Um, and uh, what they do is they tend to mimic hormones and they alter our metabolism in adverse ways. And what do I mean by this? Is that these chemicals um, trick your body into feeling that it's under stress. And when your body's under stress, what does it do? It says, you know, we uh, may be getting into a bad situation where we're going to uh, be starving soon, so we better store some fat. In other words, your body will go from burning fat to storing fat. So when you encounter these chemicals, um, that's what happens. And these are um, different environmental pollutants. You may have heard of PFAS or bisphenol A. Uh, there are a lot of uh, other examples. And these are chemicals that are in flame retardants. Uh, they're in nonstick cookware. They're in certain cosmetics. They're in uh, soaps that antibacterial soaps, and um, uh, they're in carpets, they're in vinyl uh, uh, curtains that have the um, uh, smell that you can tell. They're, uh, so they're, they're in a lot of uh, common chemicals. The EPA is slowly uh, moving to regulate some of these chemicals, but in the meantime, uh, the alert consumer has to just be careful to uh, try to avoid these. Uh, you may want to use more glass rather than plastic containers to uh, store foods. And uh, avoiding these chemicals is one way to help with uh, weight loss. Certainly, we don't want to uh, forget about talking to a physician about uh, the possibility of weight loss. But I wanted to ask one more question since you are a research in this whole area. Is there something else yet that uh, the research that you and your colleagues have done that has revealed certain aspects about obesity that still are not generally known to the public? So some of my research does have implications for obesity, and I'll give two examples. One is the effect of sleep. It's a little paradoxical because people think, well, I'm sleeping and I'm not burning a lot of calories, so maybe I should sleep less. Um, in fact, it's just the opposite. It turns out that sleep deprivation is really uh, bad from the perspective of obesity. In particular, um, a variety of studies show that when the amount of sleep drops below six hours per night, um, metabolic changes occur. Your body, again, senses that it's under stress. And it says, I'm under stress. I think we better start storing some fat because winter's coming. And um, I'm, of course, oversimplifying here. But um, you really want adequate sleep to, um, to uh, lose weight. It's part of uh, lowering your stress response. 
And that's a good thing. So that's one um, example. You really want to target seven to eight hours sleep. A second thing is that sun is really good for us. And the reason is that it aligns our circadian rhythms with the sun. And we very much want to be aligned with the sun. So getting morning sun is a good thing. Um, And so I would suggest that getting out there in the morning and getting some sun and a little sun in the evening is a, um, a good thing. And it will align your circadian rhythm. And this in turn um, is a positive because uh, people with misaligned circadian rhythms tend to gain weight, tend to be depressed, tend to uh, have metabolic uh, changes that predispose to diabetes. So those are two big things. Okay. Well, for the rest of this interview, I want to hear a little bit more about now when one would consult a doctor about weight. And so give us a little bit of an overview there and then some of the new things that are coming out. There's new medications uh, that are being used to treat obesity and diabetes and other medical measures. So tell us more about that aspect if somebody decides that it's time to see a physician and what treatments are available. So in the past, standard medical therapy recommendations to eat less and exercise more have been remarkably ineffective in um, helping people lose weight. And uh, medical professionals on the front lines have been aware that we need to do a lot more. There are um, a number of medications that are used in obesity practices But the big news is that there are a new class of medications that have emerged over the past year or so called the GLP-1 agonists. Uh, The G stands for uh, glucagon-1 receptors. And glucagon is a hormone that opposes uh, insulin. And what these drugs do is they essentially... um, Uh, work on the GI tract, and they tend to suppress uh, the appetite, and they delay gastric emptying, and have uh, also effects on postprandial blood glucose. That's a fancy word for the rise in blood sugar that occurs after we eat. So these changes together have made these drugs very useful in diabetes, and they were first Um, approved for diabetics. So a lot of diabetics have been receiving these drugs, and those diabetics have noticed something that, in addition to their diabetic parameters improving, they have lost weight. And um, so um, if you talk to your friends with diabetes who are receiving these medicines, they'll say, hey, you know, I haven't done much, but uh, I've lost a few pounds. And my diabetes numbers are getting better. And so um, the drug companies have uh, jumped on this and uh, trials are running to test these as weight loss drugs. And the first few trials have um, proven that these drugs uh, work, work really well for weight loss. So um, they result in fairly dramatic uh, weight loss, where people lose a few percent of excess body weight, um, 10, 15, 20, 25 pounds, you know, fairly significant weight loss, which is sustained, uh, at least as long as they use the drugs. Now, these are fairly new drugs, although obesity specialists have used them for a few years. Okay. Um, and, um, uh, the names of these drugs, Ozempic, Wegovy, Manjaro, Victoza, you're going to hear about these drugs being marketed for weight loss. The key problems with these drugs, they're expensive. They're not covered by um, insurance. They're going to cost about $1,000 plus a month. And nobody knows what happens when you stop the drugs. 
So you may say, wow, I'll use it for six months and lose the weight and take a $5,000 hit. And then you may find that you gain the weight right back after six months. And I just wanted to have you talk very briefly. Uh, we only maybe have a couple minutes about uh, medical measures that are sometimes used for for obese individuals. So the medical measures are these uh, medications. What um, listeners can try, some tips that um, they might consider. Um, I think there are some uh, uh, key things to keep in mind. One, as I said, exercise is really useful uh, for general health, even though by itself it won't make you lose weight. Second, avoid processed food. Avoid sugar, especially in liquid form. Third, sleep and sun are extremely helpful. Fourth, avoid snacking. There's no reason medically or physiologically or from an evolutionary point where we need to snack. So try to stick to uh, meals. And fifth, environment um, really uh, trumps everything, trumps our willpower. So set up your environment so that there's healthy foods uh, around, and that will be something that will really help you. Okay. Well, you heard it here in terms of the best ways to lose weight and keep it off. So I want to thank Dr. Neil Caparaso, Emeritus Professor with the National Cancer Institute, for joining me today. And if you'd like to learn more about Aging Matters, you can check out agingmattersonline.com, our website. And of course, at this site, you can access all of the Aging Matters radio programs that we've done, as well as the TV show episodes. And you can also log on to the podcasts, which are on Apple and Spotify. So lots to learn there by going to our website. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, which you can learn more about at inkmouthmedia.com. So thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. 